Praise the Lord. You know, this past Tuesday was the actual second anniversary since this congregation voted unanimously to call me as pastor. And that, that's not the point. <laughs> and, and I worked this week on the next message in the series from Matthew 11 that we began last week. And I, um, I had one of those experiences this week, and I wish I could tell you it didn't happen very often. It happens more often, I care to admit. But working on the message, I just experienced a great deal of spiritual warfare. And I liken it to running through peanut butter spiritually and just felt like I was slogging away and wasn't really capturing uh, the sense of, of what the Lord wanted to do this morning. And so last night, I don't know exactly when, it was sometime after dinner, um, I finally understood what the Lord was saying and, and I believe that he wants me to take some time this morning to have a heart-to-heart -heart talk with you. When I was called as your pastor about a month before that, in fact, I know the specific date, it was March 19, 2013. Um, I had been praying at that point for several weeks at the invitation of the search committee about whether or not God was calling me, whether or not I had a sense of call, God's direction, to come to Win, Arkansas. And I told the committee when they asked me to pray about it that I would need some time because I have a bad habit, as I'm sure you might have noticed, and maybe you experience it too, of getting busy in life. And when I need to hear from the Lord, I've got to slow down because I just do. And so I told them, I said, you know, it may take a while. I'm looking at my calendar here, and it may take a while before I have the time to carve out the space necessary to know that I'm hearing from the Lord and what he's saying. I just need a word from the Lord. That's all I need. Just a word from the Lord, and then I can leave a job I'd had for 10 years, uh, uproot my family, uh, leave one home, establish a new home, and come to a new place. Just need a word from the Lord. And so on March 19th, my wife and I had been praying together for some time. And my, my precious bride sometimes wants answers faster than they come. And uh, I was listening to her on that morning. I was getting ready to leave and drive to New Orleans for a visit at the seminary, a meeting there. And I was getting ready to leave the house. I was packing, and she was just sharing that she just didn't have a sense of, of the Lord's leading yet. And she really wanted to know also. And so I said, Gail, let's just stop for a moment. And I grabbed her by the hand. And we sat down, and we just asked the Lord again. So, Lord, would you, would you just make your heart plain to us uh, concerning your will about this place called Wynn and these people of Wynn? And we just asked him again together, cried out to him. And by the way, one of the most valuable things you can ever do 
when you are faced with a question or problem that's beyond your control is to cry out to the Lord. If you ever do a study on that in the scripture, I think you'll be surprised at how many times people were brought to a place where they cried out to the Lord and he answered their cry. And sometimes it's not until we cry out to the Lord that we get the answer we seek. You know, I can sit down with a piece of paper and I can make a list of pros and cons about any decision I ever face. And yet that's not the way we are called to make decisions. We are called to follow our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so we prayed that morning and I got in the car and I drove from Conway to Little Rock and then I picked up the freeway from Little Rock to Pine Bluff and somewhere just north of Pine Bluff I could drive you to the spot. I was thinking about a passage of scripture that I'd been studying for six years before that. And I specifically wanted a word from the Lord rooted in his word, his written word, that I would be able to comprehend what he was doing, what he was saying about coming here. And as I wasn't even thinking about it, my mind just drifted to that text of scripture that I've been soaking in for about six years. I'd been teaching it, thinking about it, studying it. All of a sudden, the Lord began to bring the pieces of that passage of Scripture to my heart and made very clear to me that, in fact, he was calling me to come to Win, Arkansas. Let me, let me I don't want to, I'm not going to go to that passage, I'm not going to dig into that, but, but let, me just, let me just highlight what I wrote down in my journal. I actually typed onto my iPad on the side of the road just north of Pine Bluff on March 19, 2013. The first thing that I wrote is that prayer would be the essential element of the ministry here at Wynn Baptist Church. Not an option for super saints, but prayer would become part of the fabric of the life of the ministry, the church here, in the ministry that I was going to join and be a part of, prayer. Secondly, that my purpose in coming was to help build and rebuild a people who would in turn help rebuild the church in North America. And that we would experience two things in that journey of making disciples who would in turn make other disciples beyond the confines of Wynn, Arkansas. Two things. First, he made very clear to my heart that we would experience the favor of God if we pursued that path of being obedient to him and making disciples, that we would experience the favor and blessing of God. Do you have any idea how precious and valuable that promise is? That we would experience the favor of God. Secondly, there's a direct consequence of that, we would also experience demonic opposition. It is not the Lord's heart to divide a church or to cause brothers to turn against brothers or sisters against sisters. That is not a Holy Spirit. And so behind that kind of activity, you can always find a demonic presence ready to take full advantage of otherwise very good and sweet people and cause them to dismantle the work of God. And so he said there would be the favor of God and that there would be extensive demonic opposition to this because the last thing the devil wants is to see a church in the Arkansas Delta thrive and pulsate with the life of Jesus. So this morning what I want to share with you is, is 
kind of expand just a little bit on what I believe the Lord is leading us to focus on at Wind Baptist Church. And in fact, what we have been focusing on, at least my heart has been set on since I came here as your pastor. First, his desire is that we become a people the Holy Spirit can use to transform lives throughout the Arkansas Delta and beyond. You know, in the 19th century, England became one of the great missionary sending countries in the world. If you know anything about your church history, the 19th century was a, a veritable explosion of missionaries going out. And we have some of the most wonderful stories of the favor of God as people were obedient to his call. People like Hudson Taylor and, and uh, the founding of ministries uh, that, that changed lives dramatically, the YMCA. And, and out of that, there was revival after revival in foreign lands, even domestically. And England was very much the leader in that and had begun that process in 1790 when a Baptist named William Carey helped start the first organization intended to send missionaries overseas. And literally thousands of people went overseas. It, I mean, prior to that time, virtually nil. After that time, thousands of people went overseas. But while that was happening throughout the 19th century and well into the 20th century, there was a transformation taking place within the nation itself that is now the United Kingdom or Great Britain. While the churches were actively focused on sending missionaries overseas and raising funds to support those ministries, they were neglecting the work of evangelism and discipleship at home. And the consequence of that is that you eventually erode the very foundation that enables you to send missionaries abroad in the first place. And today, in a nation of some 64 million people, less than 3% have any kind of affiliation with an evangelical, Bible-believing, gospel-preaching church. Less than 3%. And they are not a missionary-sending force on the planet today. We have been in North America for many years, been a force in sending missionaries abroad. But just like happened in the UK, we have so emphasized the need to reach the nations, which is a biblical emphasis, and it is important, that we have neglected our Jerusalem we have neglected our Judea, and we have neglected our Samaria in sharing the gospel. We've developed an attitude that people here have adequate access to the gospel and that we sit here long enough, they'll come to our church and get saved. And with that attitude, since about 2006, just, let's just talk about Southern Baptists, and that's what this church is affiliated with, is with Southern Baptist Convention. If you track giving to foreign missions, let's just pick the Lottie Moon Christmas offering, if you pack tap into that story, you will see dramatic increases in giving in Lottie Moon from about 1999 to 2006. But since 2006, it has flatlined, and even though it is some of the highest giving ever in the history of Southern Baptists, it is flat, it is not increasing, and the leaders who are sending people overseas are telling us it is not enough to finish the task. At the same time that that has happened, we have also experienced the most dramatic decline in baptisms, perhaps, in the history of Southern Baptists. Barely baptizing 200,000 people a year. 16 million Southern Baptists, most of which can never be found if your life depended on it. 
And so there's a direct relationship between evangelism that results in baptisms and our ultimately our ability to support and give to missions that goes beyond our borders. What can we do about that? Say, we're just one church in the Delta. What can we do about that? You know when the early church was launched that started with just 120 people in a prayer meeting? Just 120. We've got way more than that sitting here this morning. We'll have more than that in our second service. Just 120 people. In Acts chapter 1, verse 8, Jesus said, But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. These words spoken to a little church of about 120 people. Mistakenly, sometimes this is treated as a strategy. It is not a strategy for reaching the world. It's a prophecy. It's not where you and I are supposed to sit down and say, okay, here's our Jerusalem, here's our Judea, here's our Samaria. That's fine to talk in those terms. Don't, don't misunderstand me. I'll talk in those terms. But it's not a strategy. It's a description of what happens when the Spirit of God has directional control over His church. When He pours out His Spirit on His people, this is what happens. No pushing, pulling, begging, trying to get you to do something. We just light up when he's in control and when he's in charge. When God's people get soaked in the Holy Spirit, they start going and doing what he wants them to do. Let me, let me just offer you a piece of information I hope will encourage you. In Acts chapter 19, we've got the story of Paul preaching in the third largest city in the Roman Empire. It's called Ephesus. Ephesus was part of a larger province called Asia, which today we would call Southwest Turkey. And, and at that time, as the third largest metropolitan area in the Roman Empire, the population was about 300,000 people in that province. So Paul, one guy, goes to Ephesus, begins to preach under the anointing and the empowerment of the Holy Spirit, and people begin to meet Jesus. And their lives are transformed. And they begin to take the message outside of Ephesus to small towns and communities in Asia, the province, and more people hear about Jesus and are saved. And this goes on so that in the period of 24 months, now think what you were doing two years ago. I was getting called here as your pastor. In the space of two years, in this province of Asia, 300,000 people, the Bible says, the Word of God says, that everyone in Asia heard the word of the Lord. Everyone. Everyone. 300,000 people. Two years. No direct mail. Thank goodness. No junk mail. No billboards. No spam email. None of that. Just people talking about Jesus. 
the 15 counties or so that make up eastern Arkansas that we call the Arkansas Delta have a population of just over 424,000 people. I usually throw out a half million just to have a round number, but it's 424,000 and some change. This morning, as you and I sit here, as we worship the Lord and study his word, of those 424,000 people in the 15 counties that make up eastern Arkansas, we call it the Delta, of those 424,000, 318,000 of them are at home. And you say, well, how is that possible? They're members of the church. They may be members, but they've never been there. You know, this past Tuesday night, myself and one of our deacons, as we try to do regularly, we went out to go talk to people who have visited the church and, and share Jesus with people and talk with them. We, we had problems this past Thursday night getting to the right address. It was just a divine appointment because we went to the wrong address a couple different times and we met total strangers. And you can guess what happened next. Total stranger comes to the door. Uh, hello, are you so-and-so? No, no, I'm not so-and-so. They don't live here. Oh, sorry about that. We got the wrong address. By the way, my name is Don Pusick. I'm pastor at Wynn Baptist Church. I said, do you have a church home? Do you attend church somewhere? Oh, yeah, I go to such and such church. I said, I said what's your pastor's name? Blank. 318,000 people. They might be Methodist. They might be Baptist. They might be Presbyterian. The Lord only knows. They may have that label on their life. But they're not in church. They're not hearing the gospel. And if you think they can sit at home all their life and go to heaven when they die, you're sadly mistaken that that's the essence of the gospel. The gospel that I preach and teach has a resurrected Jesus who can take a dead body and bring it back to life. He can certainly get someone out of bed and bring them to church. In just a few weeks, uh, Mike Shipp, our pastor of missions and discipleship, and I are going to be doing a very initial uh, tour, if you will, of communities in those 15 counties. I've been talking for more than two years with pastors who share a common burden and desire to see the Delta reached for Christ. And we simply want to explore and hear their heart and look at some of those communities where we know there is no gospel witness. Communities of people where there is no gospel witness. And because of the socioeconomic group that they represent, no church, without being intentional, is going to go in there and reach them. neither a white church or a black church or a multicolored church or a mosaic church, nobody's interested in reaching the people who are on the lowest socioeconomic rung of our social ladder in the Delta. It's not happening. It hasn't happened. And so we're simply going to take a trip, road trip, for a couple of days and just survey. Mike hasn't seen the Delta. I've driven back and forth across the Delta for over 10 years. He needs to see it. And when he sees it, we hope that based on what we learn, that we'll find some other leaders, even our church family, our missions committee, and others, who also want to make that journey and see those communities where Jesus is not known. You think people didn't know about God on the day of Pentecost in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria? They all knew about God, but they didn't know Jesus. They didn't know Jesus.
Secondly, I believe that his desire is that we become disciples who are passionate about helping others become disciples. That you and I become the kind of person who is so following Jesus that we are passionate about helping others learn to follow Jesus also. Do you know what the basic meaning of the word disciple is? Essentially, in modern language, we would use the word student. Typically, in the dictionary, it says learner, but, but it means a student. And students in Jesus' day learned differently than, than we learn today. They didn't go into a classroom, open a book, listen to a teacher, close the book, and go home and maybe take a test or something. They, they lived with the teacher. They, they shared meals with the teacher. Where the teacher stayed, they stayed. When the teacher moved to a different place, they followed the teacher. And they, they watched what he was doing. They heard what he was teaching. And when they had opportunity, they taught what he was teaching. That was a disciple that Jesus had in mind. Someone who was going to follow him, listen to him, and then reproduce his ministry, model his ministry for someone else. In Matthew chapter 28, verses 19 and 20, we have the Great Commission. If you've been in church two minutes, you should have heard it 20 times. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. Now, we've, we've talked about this here. What is, there's one single command in the Great Commission in the original language. Does anyone recall what it is? What is the heart of the Great Commission? What is it that we are to do? Make disciples. Make disciples. That means if we are not making disciples, we are not fulfilling the Great Commission. We're not. And so I feel that intensely as your pastor. Because that is our assignment. That is our mission statement. We could put it on a plaque on the wall if it would help. But that is our mission statement. I can reword it. I can put a pretty picture on it. But the mission statement remains the same. We're called to make disciples. And going, or as you go, or as you do life. Baptizing, which assumes that someone is sharing the gospel, being saved, and coming to a place where they can be baptized. Baptizing and teaching them are all processes by which we make disciples. They are how we do it. Going, baptizing, teaching. Now we do that in different ways here at Wind Baptist. One of the most extraordinary things I love about our church, and I've been so impressed with, and I brag on our church, if that's godly, to brag on some things, is that we are a church. We've got men in this church, for example who meet together during the week. No one pays them to do it. No one chided them into doing it. And they meet together, and they, they have taken other men over the years, and they have coached them and loved them and prayed for them and discipled them. And I don't know how many of these groups are meeting at Wind Baptist Church. There's, there's, I've discovered new ones every now and then. And I pray their tribe may increase. It's one of the most remarkable things about this church. I can't tell you when it started. I've asked some of the oldest members of the congregation, you want to raise your hand? I've talked to some of you, and I've asked you, when did that start? And you've told me it's gone on as long as I can remember. Now, that's extraordinary. Why? Because not every church does that. Not every church does that. 
We have pastors, two of the largest, strongest, growing churches in Arkansas who are products of the informal discipleship of Wynn Baptist Church. I praise God for that. And so we make disciples informally, and well, we should. But you know one of the primary ways we do it is a, is a group of Christians together. Some of us don't have the time to go into a, an additional small group during the week. You know the primary way we do that, that we make disciples? You know how? Anyone want to take a guess? We do it when? Our primary way that we do it is through our Bible study groups. We have some that meet not on Sunday. We have some that meet at other times. But, but through our Bible study groups. We, call it, we used to call it Sunday school. We can still call it Sunday school. Call it what you want. Adult Bible Fellowship, ABF, uh, uh, Grow Groups. Um, we have all these different names for them. But they do the same thing. They help people learn about Jesus, hear about Jesus, grow to follow Jesus. You see, the way we, we grow as disciples is someone who's further down the road rubs off on me. They say something, I go, Whoa. They're doing something. I go, wow. And I look at them and I see them. I go, I, I want to be like that. That man follows Jesus. That woman follows Jesus. And I want to be like them. So that's our mission, to make disciples. Now let me tell you some, some disheartening news. Did you know that from 2010 to 2013, when I came to win? that our average worship attendance had declined by 150 people each week. Our Sunday school attendance had declined nearly by the same number, it was a little less. Statistically, whether you knew it or not, whether you understood it or not, there was a rapid decline taking place, a freefall. I don't know about you, but when I see something like that, when I see a church hemorrhaging members, attenders like that. I'm thinking, my goodness. We're supposed to be going the other direction. We're supposed to be making disciples, not losing disciples. And so I felt something had to be done. We, uh, when Mike came, we looked at our, our classes. We looked at our, where everybody was. We had plenty of room for growth and preschool and with our students, we had plenty of room up there, a big room up there. We had plenty of room for children, uh, not as much as we do in other areas, but we had some room to grow with our children. But you know what we found when we looked at our adults? We didn't have but one space on the property that was a classroom where we could put more adults. One. And so that told me right away that, that if, if Bible study groups are a primary way that we make disciples, and, and if the way we're going to make more disciples is to start more Bible study groups, because, listen to me, new groups reach more people than old groups. It's just the truth. New Bible study groups, new churches, whatever it is, they reach more people. Why? Because when you start a new group, everybody knows why they're there. Right? When you're part of a new group, you know, hey, we're here and our group's supposed to grow. But when you've been part of a group for a while, sometimes we forget that. I just want to get my coffee. And it doesn't bother you that your group's not growing after you've been there a while. You like the people, they like you, and it becomes an us for and no more situation. Did you get that? Us for and no more. 
And so I couldn't very well, as a pastor, challenge a Bible study group to start new Bible study groups if we had no place to put them that was appropriate. Yeah, we could put them in the yard, in a tent. We could put the biters up in the gym. Or we could do a sensible thing and reuse space that we already have. And so last summer, we challenged you to think about what it would mean to go to two Bible study hours. Do you remember the red chair stories? If you were here, we shared a series of red chair stories. And we had a tagline for that. I don't know if I remember it correctly. I think it said, more room, more people, more stories. More room, more people, more stories. And we used a red chair. Now the chair, the color of the chair is not that significant. It was just a way to remember it. But we used the chair because... By the way, you know it's more fun to be part of a growing church. You know it's a lot more fun to be a part of a growing church than a church that's not growing. You're not convinced. It's the truth. It's a lot more fun. I've had Mike's responsibility in a church that was running 500 people. We went to 1,000 in five years. It's a lot more fun to be in a growing church where people are coming forward every Sunday and receiving Christ. That's a lot more fun. It's just fun. Nothing wrong with enjoying God's work. And in the classes that I taught, we understood, if I was in the class, that part of our work was not just to disciple the people in that immediate group, but our goal was to reach more disciples and ultimately to start a new group that would make more disciples. And if that was in their DNA, they would understand that their assignment was to start another group and make more disciples. Why? Because Jesus said so. It's our mission statement. It's why we exist as a church. If we're not going to do that, we have no other reason from God to be here. And so, each Sunday, at the end of class, I would do the same thing. I would take this chair, not the red one. I wish I had a red one back then. I would talk to the people in my class. I would say, you know, how many of y'all enjoyed what we did here this morning? Of course, it was always unanimous. I had a great class. How many of y'all enjoyed what we did? And they'd say, we loved it. We had a great time. I said, I want you to take a moment. Look at this chair right here. No one's sitting in it. Who do you know that needed what we did this morning? Who do you know at home, your family, your friends, neighbors, who do you know that needed what we just did here this morning? And they would think for a little bit. I said, let's pray for that person right now. Would you, just, would you just think about that person, think about that name, and pray for them. And next week, maybe God will put them in this chair. You understand the significance now of a red chair? Some of you all have that in your Sunday school class. And, um, and I want to encourage you to use it. And, and it should be so redundant. It should be so old that people kind of smile and roll their eyes when you grab the chair. That's what they would do in my classes. I'd grab that chair and I'd say, you know what this chair represents? Somebody that needed to be here that wasn't here this morning. And as God brings that person to mind, would you just set your heart maybe to invite them this week? Invite them to come. Be a part of this. And maybe God will give you an open door even before they get here and you can just share your testimony of how Jesus changed your life. And it starts by deciding that this is more important than my personal comfort 
This is more important than my family's comfort. This is more important than getting to sleep in or whatever other thing that you're having to sacrifice. Have, have some of you had to make sacrifices because we went through two Bible studies? Thank you. For God's sake, thank you. For the sake of the gospel, thank you. And may God continue to bless us as we do whatever's necessary to reach people for Christ. Let me tell you what you can do to help. I've already mentioned the first one. Start inviting lost and unchurched friends to Bible study with you. Just start inviting them. You know how hard it is to invite somebody to church? It's not. I mentioned the whole Delta, 318,000. 5,000 of the people who are sitting at home this morning are here in Wynn, Arkansas. At least 5,000. Those who do research would tell us the number's closer to six. You've got somebody you can invite to church. And now let me tell you this. We've got amazing teachers. We've got amazing Bible study teachers. They are good teachers. And they love their classes. And they love the Word of God. And they are devoted to their classes. And you bring someone who doesn't have friends, someone who feels isolated in the world, someone who doesn't have a clue who God is or what God's about, you bring someone like that into that kind of environment, it is absolutely overwhelming to their heart. And they become wide open to the gospel. Invite someone to come with you to Bible study. Let me tell you something else you can do. On May the 3rd, Mike has already begun to, to let people know, but on May the 3rd, in the afternoon, 4 o'clock, is it 4 o'clock? We're having a leadership meeting for our Sunday school. And particularly our adult teachers, come with your adult teacher to that meeting, May 3rd, 4 o'clock. You say, why? Because, because I'm going to talk about outreach through your Bible study group. I'm going to talk to you about practical ways that you can reach people as a class for Christ. And they're practical. I did this for years. And you can do all the right things and God doesn't bless, but I believe God wants to bless one Baptist church. I believe God has more in mind for this church than any of us have ever dreamed. I believe he wants to bestow his favor on this church. And so I would invite you to invite people to come, come with your teacher to our next meeting on May the 3rd. Number three, last one. His desire is that we become a church that is passionate about praying together. A church that's passionate about praying together. You know, there's at least 37 places in the Gospels where Jesus specifically taught about prayer. 37. And of those 37 places, verses where he teaches specifically about prayer, 33 of those verses are grammatically addressed to people in the plural form. You know, the word you can refer to one person or several people in English. You know that, don't you? I can say you and point to Braxton, or I can say to you, and I'm meaning the whole church. Same English word. The neat thing about Greek or Hebrew and most languages is that they have what we have in the South. They have a y'all in their language. And so we Southerners, we've adapted. We, we got this down. 
And so of the 37 times Jesus taught about prayer, he was not teaching about prayer in, in the lives of individuals. He was teaching about prayer, corporate prayer, prayer that we do together. In America, we place such emphasis on the individual that we tend to read those verses. We see the word you, and we think it's just about my prayer life. When the truth is, he's talking about our prayer life together as a church. Let me give you an example. In Matthew 7, 7, Jesus said, Ask, and it will be given you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be open to you. And you think, well, he's talking to me. But let me translate that. Let me give you a Pusik Revised version of that just a little bit, okay? All of you ask, and keep on asking, because that's the strength of the verb. Don't stop. Keep doing it. All of you ask and keep on asking, and it will be given to you all. Literally, he's saying you all. You seek, all of you seek and keep on seeking, and you all will find. All of you knock and keep on knocking, and it will be open to to all of you. This is exactly the point Jesus makes in Matthew 18, 19, when he says, again, I say to you that if two of you agree on earth concerning anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. Could it be that God is waiting for Wind Baptist Church to pray together. And that when we do pray together, he's going to pour out heaven on this church. I believe that's the heart of God based on his word. In 1987, 1987, a national commentator named Paul Harvey. Remember him? Some of y'all will. Paul Harvey talked about a little town about the size of a wind called Alliance, Nebraska. 1987, he made reference to Alliance, Nebraska, that it had the highest per capita incidence of drug use in America at the time. 1987. On March 18, 1990, three years later, an eight-day revival meeting at one of the churches broke out into a full-fledged spiritual awakening that lasted for nine and a half weeks. In a town a little larger than Wynn, Arkansas, I mean just a little, 900 people were saved in nine and a half weeks. You know what that is? That's about 10% of the population of that little town. 10%. whole town was talking about it. The whole town was talking about what God was doing. Lives were being changed. One of the most prominent things that happened in that particular revival outbreak was that marriages were healed. And the Lord knows we need marriages healed in Wynn, Arkansas. One lady, 33 years old, she and her husband were in the midst of a divorce at that time. Uh, He was seeing another woman. They had two little girls who were frightened at home. She got saved on March the 30th of that year during the revival. And her family was transformed. Listen to what she wrote. God has saved my marriage and family and has put a love in my heart and soul more intense than it has ever been. God gave me the power of forgiveness, compassion, understanding, love, and control over my weak human will and thoughts. I could not change no matter how hard I tried. I could do nothing. But with Jesus, anything and everything is possible. I desperately want everyone to know this, that through Jesus Christ, you can live a first-rate life on earth and have eternal life in heaven. I like that, first-rate life on earth. 
That was her testimony, what happened when she met Jesus. Now, here's what you need to hear. Fifteen months before that revival happened, a group of men from different churches started praying together for one hour every week, specifically asking God to come to Alliance, Nebraska. Fifteen months. That would be next July. Can you imagine if next July, you know, God never does the same thing twice. What if we prayed and 20% of wind got saved? What if we prayed and 40% of wind got saved? I'm very thankful for the group of men and women we have in this church that are faithful prayer warriors. I'm thankful for the prayers that they give to me so freely as their pastor, but for so many of you as well. You know, during Easter, we had people praying for each service in other parts of the property, but they were on the site praying for this auditorium during each of the three services at Easter. The day before, we had people who prayer walked the grounds of this facility, just asking God to do a work in people's lives. On the Thursday night before that, we met in the auditorium right here, and we're going to do it again this Thursday night at 7 o'clock. We met in the auditorium. I brought a marker board in here, and we just simply prayed by name for people and for needs. And God's already dramatically answered some of those prayers. And so this coming Thursday night, we're going to do it again. Thursday night, 7 o'clock, if you can come, about an hour, we're going to pray. And we're going to start doing it the first and third Thursday nights of each month. Just real simple, very informal. You say, well, I don't know how to pray. I don't think I can pray in a group. Hey, come try it. It's easy. Come sit with me. Come sit by me in that meeting. I'll make it easy for you. I learned to pray by listening to other people pray when I was a college student. You can learn to pray too. I want to close this morning by reading from Luke chapter 14, verse 25. Luke chapter 14, verse 25. You know, the, one of the amazing things I love about Jesus is he was never impressed with a crowd. <laughs> you know, we have a large crowd and we say, oh, things are going well. Jesus saw the crowd and he, his mind worked totally differently than ours. His thought was, how many of these people are really going to follow me? That's what he was thinking. How many of these people are really going to follow me? I don't think that this group understands why they're here. That's what he was thinking. Listen to what happens, verse 25 of Luke 14. Now great multitudes went with him, and he turned and said to them, listen to what he says, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, and his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. He didn't say they can be a little bit of a disciple. And look at those relationships. I read an old preacher this week who was commenting on this. And um, I'm thinking if I can get this right, he, he, said, he said, Jesus asked you to surrender your love for your, your parents. That's your earliest love. He asked you to surrender your love for your wife and children. That's your, your most tender love. 
your dearest love. And then he said you have to surrender your love for yourself, your own life. He said that's your nearest love. And Jesus didn't leave anything unturned. In fact, if you keep reading through that, you get all the way down to verse 33. He says, so likewise, whoever of you does not forsake all that he has cannot be my disciple. There's no option. There's no in-between stage. Forsake all that you have. Now, what does that mean to forsake all that you have? Does that mean you need to go burn the house down this afternoon? I hope not. Please don't. I believe he's talking about the attitude of the heart. And the willingness to follow him means you've got to have a primary attachment to him and no secondary attachments to anything else. And what I want you to see as I close is verse 27. Whoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. He didn't say that there was some other alternative. Only those who bear the cross, pick up their cross and bear it, can be his disciple. Period. So I think it's incumbent on you and me to ask the question, what does it mean to bear my cross? I think you understand that the cross was an instrument of death. And if you're carrying your cross, where are you headed? It's not good. You're on your way to an execution, your execution. And, and as you're carrying that cross, I believe what's going through your mind at that moment is you're looking forward and you're headed to your execution is not what's going on on this side of heaven, but what's about to happen on the other side of heaven. Your mind is focused on your ultimate destiny and not on your present circumstances. Let me illustrate it this way. Y'all remember musical chairs? Musical chairs? Uh, I gotta get Beth Ratliff up here for a demonstration. I'm sure they do that in the Wii School. Musical chairs. You remember musical chairs where they set out a certain number of chairs and you know, you all lined up and you walked around it while they played the music. And then suddenly somebody stopped the music. Everybody had to plop into a chair, but there was always one chair less. Remember? One chair less than the number of people, and so somebody got ejected from the game. It was really kind of cruel to do that to kids, but that's what we do. <laughs> but you know, life's not always fair, so maybe it's a good thing. But here's, here's why I want you to think about what it means to carry the cross. When, you're, when you are, do you remember when you're walking around those chairs, they're playing the music. You're not thinking, oh, I like that song, are you? You're not going, oh, that's a lovely song. You're not thinking, oh, squirrel, look out through the window. The squirrel out there. You're not thinking about that. What are you thinking about? You're listening to that music because you know, you know, any minute, any minute, any second, that music is going to stop. And that's all you're thinking about. That's all you're focused on is for that moment when that music's going to stop. That's what it means to carry your cross. It means that you live in such a way and your mind is oriented in such a way that you know that there's coming a moment where the music is going to stop. All this is going to be over and nothing goes with you. Nothing. Nothing. Let me ask you to bow your heads and close your eyes. Thank you for your attentiveness patience I wonder this morning if you're a person that realizes that you need to step forward and publicly 
place your trust in Jesus Christ or announce that you have placed your trust in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. He demands not more than you have, but he does expect all that you have. All you are to come and to entrust him with your life. Our sin problem keeps us separated from God. I cannot work my way to heaven. I cannot earn my way to heaven. There's nothing I can do that can replace what Jesus has already done for me on the cross when he died for my sins and for yours. And by living a life of perfect trust in his Father, he never sinned. Always following the Father's heart always pursuing his will never failed at that not for a moment and when you and I trust Jesus we get all the credit for the way Jesus lived it's called righteousness and it gets credited to us and God the Father looks at us as if we were just as righteous and wonderful and precious as his own son and that's a gift from God that's grace the Bible says this morning that all you have to do to receive this gift of salvation and forgiveness and a new relationship with God is, is you have to receive it. Just simply receive it. You can't make yourself good enough. You can't clean up your act. There's nothing you can do to improve on what Jesus has done. You just come. Just as you are and you say, I receive this gift. I'm putting my trust in Jesus. And by faith, I receive this gift of salvation and forgiveness. If that's your heart cry today, whether you're in the balcony or on the floor, I invite you to come. I'll be down front. We've got two pastors down here. We've got deacons, deacons' wives, and others that would, would gladly step up and pray with you. Perhaps you came with a friend. You don't want to come by yourself. Grab them by the hand and say, come with me. If you have a burden on your heart, you need to pray. If it helps you, use this altar. Use these steps. Come and pray. But this morning, the future of Wind Baptist Church is truly at stake. So we chart a course for the future based on the leadership of His Holy Spirit. You really need to sit back and ask yourself, am I in the, the full flow of the heart of God? Am I right where He wants me to be, doing what He wants me to do, serving where He wants me to serve? As God speaks to your heart, will you respond to him? Our Father and our God, thank you for your word. Thank you for speaking to us. Thank you for the truth. Thank you for counting us worthy to even be here this morning. For all the privileges, the goodness you have showered on us. Now, Father, through your Holy Spirit, would you guide us in these moments? I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand with me? I'm giving you my heart and all that is within. I lay it all down for the sake of you, my King. I'm giving you my dreams, I'm laying down my rights, I'm giving up my pride 
for the promise of new life and I surrender all to you all to you and I from the heart from the heart ask you to please bow your heads and close your eyes. Father, in your word, you've clearly called us to pray, to be a praying people. It's abundantly clear that you intend to advance your church through a spirit-filled people. And we know your spirit is a Holy Spirit. And we know that your heart is to make disciples. But you gave us that task, that assignment. And so, Father, forgive us for taking for granted the direction so clearly given in your word. Forgive us for those moments and seasons where we've gone days and weeks with not even a thought of you. Forgive us for trying to live our lives as if they were going to last forever on earth and that there was nothing beyond the grave. Raise us up as a people of conviction, a people of the Spirit people who love people enough to bring them to Jesus. Fathers, we give our offerings. It's with that heart of worship and that desire that we give. May it be pleasing to you. We ask it in Jesus' name.